And we're out. <sighs> nice, nice, nice. That's probably going to be like one of our top ten for Short Box Showcase. Like, I, I'm pretty proud of that. I think so, too. Hey, uh, by the way, I heard from Paul Spatero, and he wants us to host one of those assistant editors versions they do on Back to the Bins. Uh, okay, so Paul wants to take a month off. Well, yes, but, I mean... Cool, cool, cool. A man cool. of his advanced years, sometimes you need to take rests every now and then. Oh, that's true. That's that's fair. So, um, how are we going to do this? Well, I mean, Bins at this point is a pretty well-oiled machine, mm -hmm. so I just thought we should just try to, like, figure out, like, the roles that they play and just try to fit into those. Okay. For example, I'll be producing the episode. And you're really old, so you can be Paul. I'm not as old as Paul. Yeah, whatever, that's fine. Uh, so who who would I be? Here's the thing. You have some pretty strong opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you express them in sort of a grumpy manner. Oh, okay, so I'll be Scott. Tell <laughs> Obviously. Tell everyone to get off my lawn. Perfect. <laughs> I can definitely do that. Only problem is, yep. uh, there's only two of us. Mm. So how are we going to replace Dr. Bill? Well, we can invite anyone. And as long as they don't bring a book, they can be Bill. <laughs> That's harsh. True, but harsh. What I was thinking is, when I said we could like fill in those roles, mm -hmm. obviously we're going to improve on them. Okay, so we need a better version of Dr. Bill. Exactly. Okay. Um, do you have any, any thoughts about that? Well, maybe. Hmm. What are you thinking? What if... Now, hear me out. Okay. We got an actual doctor. Whoa! That's crazy. I know. Maybe. Just crazy enough to work. Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Paul Spatero is on vacation, Scott Gardner is on assignment, and Dr. Bill is in the couch in the back snoozing. And is he snoring? I think so, yeah. Okay. It's either that or the air conditioner. One or the other. But I'm Professor Allen, and we're going to all be okay, because this is Assistant Editor's Month, and I've pulled in two of my bestest internet buddies in the whole world to join me, one of whom I've known their entire life. So let's start there. From, I'm going to say, the much-beloved Uncovering the Bronze Age... <laughs> And critically acclaimed, Darkness to Light, it's my podcasting partner in crime, Back to the Bins veteran, Hello, M. Hello! Great to be here. In your living room. <laughs> well, yes. And then all the way from New England, a.k.a. the land of almost no quarter bins. It's a man with quite a resume. Let's just tick off him a few of his most important accomplishments prior relatively geeky listener of the year 
proprietor of an award-winning Supergirl blog, and emergency room physician at Children's Hospital, it's Dr. Ange. Hello! Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be on this podcast and take a dive back into the bins. Now, I know this is your first time on Back to the Bins. Is it possible that this is the first time you've been over here at Two True Freaks? Uh, I believe it is. It's not quite as fancy. The concierge service is not quite as good as Fire and Water. But uh, it's it's not bad. I'm just, it's not bad, okay? It's, it's decent. <laughs> yeah, you know, I consider myself kind of like that utility infielder that on the back of his exactly. baseball card has like 12 teams, right? I, I do a little cup of coffee with almost everybody. Let this be a lesson to any prospective podcasters listening, because we know that the vast majority of people who listen to podcasts do podcasts. If you need a guest, Dr. Ange <laughs> is your man. Uh, let's just start with a brief chat about anything we want to share from our recent comic book experiences. And Ange, judging from your Twitter account this morning... I'm guessing that you are floating about a foot off the ground, and your eyeballs are shaped like hearts? Yeah, it's, uh, I have to uh, say that's all true, thanks to um, podcasting Pair Excellence Sutherlands, who sent me Yay. an autographed, yeah, they sent me an autographed picture of uh, Rachel Lee Cook, who played Josie in um, what I think is the criminally uh, underrated um, and underestimated uh, Josie on the Pussycats movie, uh, and it says... To Ange, you're awesome, Rachel Lee Cook, and so I guess that you know, makes it official. I know, you know, my heart was going a little bit pitter patter there. I must admit. Um, now I'm so, not. Now I, it would be inappropriate to put you on the spot, you know, as a respected medical professional. But what do you think Shag would say? Yeah, about Rachel Lee Cook. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what he would say. Um, I would say that uh, that whole movie, the whole cast probably could have that described about them. <laughs> now, in terms of, also in terms of conventions, we know that not only are you a recipient of things from conventions, you like to uh, go and get things signed. Uh, how is the secret project and con season going for you? Well, a couple of weeks ago, um, there was sort of what I call the uh, the appetizer for my con season, a very small uh, convention in Massachusetts called Plastic City Comic Con, where there were 20-cent boxes. Oh, uh, five uh, for a dollar, baby. Yes, and it was really wonderful. It was like panning for gold because there was a lot of dreck, and then I pulled yep. out like the Marvel special complete Blade Runner miniseries in one issue, oh, which was nice. like a the holy grail for me for two thin dimes. Uh, and then we're really I love approaching. You, man. I know it was so fantastic. And then coming up is a uh, Terrificon and Boston Fan Expo, uh, both of whom have uh, Terrificon in particular has a very good uh, list of guests and i like to put together what i call top secret project although it's not really top secret anymore where i bring a lot of issues to get signed um, for friends and then mail out packages in september so that people have some fun uh, stuff arrive early christmas yeah i work hard to sort of get the right issues to get signed for the right people so uh, so it's actually it gives me a lot of joy so uh, what more can i ask for nothing wrong with that uh m you've been spending time on the dc universe app I asked because I've been spending time on your DC Universe app. Yeah, it, uh, it's uh, pretty awesome. 
I'm a couple episodes into Doom Patrol. Very happy that it's been renewed, but I have not gotten caught up yet. Mm -hmm. Very sad because I'm only going to get like whatever seven episodes of Swampy. Swamp Thing. Yeah. But I'm also I also have all of the the episodes of uh, Constantine. Between the two, I have almost a complete season. <laughs> Think positive. I'm thinking positively. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Titan season two. I've been seeing a lot of news and buzz and pictures and stuff from the various like fan sites that have been getting some pictures of filming. I think they just wrapped on season two a couple of weeks ago. And I am uh, extremely hopeful for uh, season two. It looks like it's going to be really, really good. Well, in the spirit of Back to the Bins, I have been digging through the comic book side of the DC Universe app, though I do have a vacation coming up next week, and uh, I am planning to work my way through the Legion of Superheroes cartoon. Nice, that, nice. That, to me, that seems like quality time, you know what I'm saying, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, and with a new book coming out around the corner, you know, that'll be a nice exactly. refresh. We're going to be adding that to our pull list, right? It is, okay. it is. Okay, It is. Uh, right. am, am I right, Doctor, that your main squeeze, Supergirl? has a role in this potential Legion restoration? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think he's been pretty tight-lipped about how much she'll be in there, but okay. they did release some image of uh, two covers that Brian Hitch did where she's sort of front and center, so she's got some role in it. So that's all I can ask for. Well, not to let this get too DC-centric, we'll point out, of course, that my main man, Doctor Doom, has his own series coming up. So, very excited about that, and also have to give a shout-out to friend of Bins, Rob Lance, the generous Canadian, who sent me a whole box full of Falling Apart comics recently. Kids' books, <laughs> and funny books, and heroic books, and I think Rob's philosophy is, if with a clear conscience, there's no way he can sell the book for a quarter... He just throws it in the, well, send this to Middleton eventually box. <laughs> and I'm not complaining. No shame in being a comic's last stop <laughs> <laughs> on, on the way to, on the, way to the, uh, the great uh, long box in the sky. Now you don't have any regrets about people sending us boxes and boxes and boxes of old comics. You're not mom. going to mention your mom, are you? Mom Why did you have to bring that up? About people sending us boxes and boxes and boxes of comics. Here's the thing. Look, I love Rob. Problem is, he sent so many books, I was unable to get them all hidden. categorized, hidden. labeled, hidden before mom got home. But fortunately, I think she only thinks it was like the 25 that I left out that I couldn't. She thinks that was the entirety. Of what he sent, so sometimes Ange the things we have to do. You know, go to the mailbox first. That's the that's the best thing that to do. Rule number one. <laughs> rule number one. Now, of course, here on back to the bins, we are supposed to bring a Marvel and a DC and an independent. But this is Assistant Editors Month, and what do we know about that, M? While the cat's away, the mice will play. Anything can happen. So just to be rebels, I think each and every one of us brought an independent comic to the show. And we will start with M. All right. My offering for today is Gen 13 Bootleg, number three. 
published by Image Comics, January 1997. The story is a Gen 13 fairy tale, which was written and penciled by Dan Norton and inked by Sandra Hope. Starting with the cover, you see an extremely 90s font for this particular series, which is somewhat jarring when all of our main characters are in sword and sorcery fantasy style costumes and poses here on the front cover. I will reveal the quote-unquote spoiler of this up front. What this is, is an example of one of my favorite things that is finally becoming a little bit of a trope, the D&D fill-in episode. (laughs) And quick thoughts on the cover? Yeah, I'll say that I have very little experience with Gen 13, and so uh, I took a look at this, and I at least recognized Fairchild, and then I said, huh, I wonder if this is like some alternate universe, Um, but it definitely does have that big swords, big shoulder pads, totally 90s extremeness to it that makes me smile at times and cringe at others, and um, (laughs) as a lifelong D&D fan, I was like, oh... We have a dwarf barbarian and a paladin and a magic user and a thief. So, you know, you can kind of rattle everything off. Yep. Just judging from the cover, it is very much barbarian, rogue, paladin, cleric, (laughs) wizard. Boom, 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 boom. So it worked. It told the story. I will admit the only reason that I own this copy is because I have never read Gen 13, let alone Gen 13 bootleg. The only reason I have it is because of this cover, which caught my eye when we were at our local comic store's New Year's sale, Mm, and this book cost me one dime. Not to completely undercut your massive two-dime fine. Mm. (laughs) This book cost me ten cents. Are you you calling Ant a sucker? Is that what you just did? I'm calling him a classic bargain hunter. (laughs) We are just luckier. That is true. So the story begins by setting out a very typical D&D premise. There is a magical land called Dezinian, and there is a Sir Lynch of Yoes, or Joys, or whatever, (laughs) uh, who is gathering some great heroes to stop an oncoming darkness from consuming the land. This works both as a very basic fantasy story setup and also a a retelling of the first issue of this same book in which all of the main characters met were brought together in a team by John Lynch. Mm. There's going to be a lot of this. Okay, context. There's going to be a lot of this. And honestly, I had to Google all of the context. So people who have (laughs) actually read... Gen 13 would probably get an even bigger kick out of this, but I'm going to do my best. The wicked sorceress Ivana is wrecking the whole land, and as a result, there is an ancient prophecy, which will find five great warriors that destiny and fate will bring together in order to stop this great and terrible darkness. Uh, We are introduced to our main characters, Roxy who is a street urchin thief who meets up with the blacksmith's daughter, Caitlin. And mm. uh, the two of them form a sort of friend, working friendship in their small town until 
minion demons flood across the countryside, forcing them to run from their town out into the woods. There they are attacked by a hobgoblin and rescued by an elf in very, very skimpy battle armor whose name is Rainmaker. The three together compare stories and start to unravel this destiny that is leading them all together. They find the Temple of Vashkar, where they receive a whole bunch of magical items, including the arms of Athena for Caitlin, and uh, a bunch of magical doodahs, they, a dagger of quickness, the medallion of Gorlez, which Roxy is very quick to pick up. Now that we have our core adventuring team of heroines, they continue across the land going through various adventures until they hear the howl of a dwarven war cry coming from a barbarian by the name of Del Grungo, along with his cleric friend Burnout. <laughs> Burn. Och. <laughs> the two of them uh, defeat a giant and with a great thud, our five warriors have joined together in mortal combat. It was now decided that Del Grungo and Bernot search for the five heroes was over, they themselves being the final components. They meet a bunch of other characters that are references to various fights and people that they had met in the earlier issues, and together they find the powers of the River of Plin and uh, work to take down Ivana and her summoned demon bastards. At the end, they all gather together and the people celebrate their newly found heroes who have saved the kingdom once and for all. Perhaps fate would call upon them again, but that would be a different story. The end. And in the final pages, it is revealed that this was in fact a bedtime story that Roxy was telling to Grunge. And they have some cute, sort of mm -hmm. over-the-top 90s interactions where he <laughs> says, read it again, but do the voices better, and she slams the book down on his head so that he passes out. The end. Let me just say, I have heard someone tell me, lo, those many decades ago, read it again, but do the voices better this time. Was, or, or mostly, that was mom. I was going to say that was mostly that was mostly mom. At a certain point, she stopped reading me bedtime stories because we would get to the end and I would go, "You didn't do the voices right." I'd be like, "What do you mean I didn't do the voices right? Dad does the voices right." And she was like, "Okay, yeah, okay." <laughs> About that point is when she started investing in uh, audio cassette yes. storybooks, and the rest was history. <laughs> and here, here we are today as podcasters. Uh, so thoughts on this uh, overall, Doctor? Outside of, believe it or not, the Superman Gen 13 mm. crossover miniseries, I have very little knowledge of this group. So I'm as I was reading the beginning part, I was like, I'm sure there is wordplay and name mm -hmm. conventions and all of those things that I'm missing that would probably make this a better read if I was a Gen 13 fan. The beginning part of this really reads like a fairy tale book. This is not captions and word balloons and strips. This is like uh, text boxes with one illustration as if you're reading right. a storybook. 
sort of reminded me a little bit, you know, there's that whatever Firestorm Annual number two, and believe it or not, there's one issue of Sojourn, um, which mm. I read in the cross-gen ages that was uh, similarly laid out. And so I don't mind running across this style of comic book every so often, which is more like just illustrated text, right. um, especially given that this turns out to be a bedtime story that uh, Roxy is reading. First off, I am curious how a regular reader of Gen 13, which none of us are, I think other than this book, I think, Ange, you may be in the lead. Having <laughs> read that one Superman Gen 13 crossover, you may be the biggest veteran of this title. <laughs> uh, this now brings my reading to one. Yep, likewise. <laughs> but one of the premises on Back to the Bins, every story could be someone's first. You know, every comic has to stand on its own. Uh, but I am curious how someone, a regular Gen 13 reader, would think of it. Would would you have thought it being super cool? Or would you think, this is kind of a clip show, right? Because it, it, it could be interpreted either way. I am obviously a pretty big fan of this story. I actually, when picking this book, when my dad said, right. like, find a book to bring the bins, my first thought was Gen 13 bootleg number three. And I was actually, the, I was a little, uh, having some difficulty finding which book I was going to pick because I was positive that I had talked about this book somewhere before. Mm. Because it is one of my favorite examples of a complete standalone story. True, right. It, it hits me in that perfect little sweet spot of uh, sword and sorcery, Dungeons and Dragons style adventure comics that I really, really love. Uh, and in my personal opinion, based on my general dislike of most superhero <laughs> books from the 90s, yep. I think that having a fantasy setting only improves this book mm. by a wide margin because the skimpy costumes and the weird oversized shoulder pads almost makes more sense to me. They had context. In, in there this was a context of, for it. In this sort of fantasy context, yeah, that it's like, okay, well, this is the cover of a 1970s metal album or an issue of heavy metal or some sort Conan, of uh, yeah, Conan, right. uh, a cover for a Conan collection from the 80s. Like, in, in that context, it almost bothers me less mm -hmm. with the ridiculous proportions and the stupid costumes and the... General imageness. The, yeah, the, the imageness <laughs> of the book bothers me significantly less. It, I think, works very well as a standalone story that, A, introduces the team to Gen 13, that this was actually a very interesting way to sort of contextualize their right. roles and powers i feel like i could actually read an issue of gen 13 and sort of get the characters mm -hmm. by using their D, &D analogs <laughs> to help sort of understand the team dynamics there's a reason why that sort of D, &D dynamic works it's the one of this the one of this the one of this the one of this i mean that's how superhero teams get formed too right we need our big guy we need our fast guy we need our this person we need the that person we need the smart we need the smart gal we need the this that you know it's it's you are you are the filling in roles yeah i'm sure that a person who was actually just reading it month to month would probably feel like they'd been kind of ripped off mm -hmm. waiting a month and getting this but i really really love this as a standalone story as an introduction to gen 13 i think it works really well and as a standalone D, D fantasy right. story it works shockingly well there are actually aside from the name references there right. are very few in jokes 
that would actually prevent mm-hmm. someone from getting the plot of this story as a standalone. So if you gave it a C plus, I would give it a B minus. <laughs> now, and referenced this before. This is all about the design aspects yes. as well, because it's not laid out like a typical comic book. We, uh, M and I, talk about the illustrated novel. That's sort of the examples that uh, the way that we would. Uh, describe that where you've got the text running down a column on one side or maybe in the middle of the page and it varies from page to page so i think the design element is the strongest part of it again not being a huge D person or a gen 13 person i was holding on to what i could and it was this is a really pretty book those design elements and one trick you're approaching this uh doctor but at uh at my advanced years, not as advanced as Paul Spatero, let's clarify that. But at my advanced years, sometimes, let's just say alternative fonts in a comic book can be a little tricky, especially replicating handwriting. Yeah. I think this one does it really well. Very easy to read. They're not trying to pull anything with the difficult, sometimes you get the dark background and the dark font and i'm thinking what are you thinking so they i think they did everything they could to even on a page where it's there's a page where it's white font on a black background even that again that script uh, font can be difficult to read in general but it's not here at least i i did not find it to be here so thumbs up for that you know it's it's funny i'll say that i wonder if the whole concept of this bootleg title was like Gen 13 Elseworlds. And maybe if you know going in that the bootleg of this is you're going to see these characters in different situations than you normally would, that you'd be like, well, I know what I'm going in for, right? This is like Gotham by Gaslight. It's characters that you know, just in in a what-if situation. You know, and I think that, you know, um, if you really love the characters, you might say like, boy, I wonder what they would be like in a D&D situation. And then huzzah, you know, you get it. And so, um, so I think as long as you know what you're in for, um, you're probably quite happy. If the reason that I picked it up was because of the cover, which was interesting, the reason I bought it was for the art. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I mentioned it was a 10 cent comic. You know, the bar is fairly low. But when I first picked it up and opened it, I thought to myself very strongly about actually dissecting this book. (laughs) Uh, It was a close thing. I was planning on possibly disassembling this book and framing the pages Mm -hmm. and hanging it up as like a single manuscript page because I thought the art was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not a big fan of 90s art in general, and that's both design and also line art and also coloring. In this case, the super intense digital coloring, which in a lot of comic books is really jarring and unpleasant, I think worked really, really well. Um, the scans that I sent to you two were a little bit more muted than the, the book itself. But even then, with the bright, bright blue and the bright, bright red and the fuchsia and the neon green, it kind of worked in a way that it never really worked for a regular superhero team because it looks fantastical. Right. But with a D&D story like this, where you have a literally bright blue, like Smurf blue ogre, or the armor is fuchsia, or neon green, or, you know, the sky is bright yellow, I can go with it because it's a fantasy world. It's supposed to be super saturated and over the top. I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of the illustrated novel, and Mm -hmm. this is one of the few examples of an illustrated novel just 
single issue. Right. I just, I love them unequivocally. The font is great. The layouts are great. Uh, a lot of 90s comics, and particularly Image Comics, and particularly Liefeld Image Comics, which this is not, but is, is definitely in that vein, are just based around poses. And mm-hmm. in a regular comic book, that kind of bothers me because I'm like, well, why are you posing? But in this context, where each page only has a single panel, well, then, yeah, of course it's going to be a pose. Of course it's going to be an action pose. Of course it's going to be like a mid-combat super action scene because there's no interstitials. There's no sitting around talking. There's no transitional panels getting from place to place. So every single page is allowed to be a splash page, and it totally works. Mm -hmm. And the person who brought the book leads off with the greeting. So, for the cover, it's not great. It's eye-catching, but I think the cover is eh, a bit above average. I'd probably give it a C+. For the interior art, I definitely think that this this is the selling point. Yeah. This The unique design, the lettering, all of the parts of the design work and the layouts that come together in this book is easily the best part. I would give that a solid solid a story b minus yeah good not great definitely enjoyable which i think all averages out to about a b plus that's pretty much where i was b minus on the cover maybe i think it sets the tone you get as you guys pointed out the fantasy characters the weapons all of that uh there's not a lot of action in it the action is the characters dressed like this I suppose. And there was that weird yellow-orange background in the cover. But, you know, it it worked. Liked it. Didn't love it. I love the interior art. And I'm not an art person. And so for me to recognize art, it has to be really different. And obviously, this is really different. So, on the art, A-. minus. I think it's very good. Story is sort of standard fantasy D&D story. But... That's also part of the charm of it, I think. So somewhere in the BB minus, so I'd land overall with you with a B plus ish. With definitely the o- art overall for this, the with, with the art, uh, with the art bringing it up. I think for all the reasons you say, I'd probably give the cover a B. Um, it's just a little stiff to me, uh, you know, as if they're more like mannequins than actually like prepping for battle. I think, like you, the inside art is an A. This is kind of like image house style, I would say, and definitely like Gen 13 house style, you know, squint, it looks enough like J. Scott Campbell that it sort of fits right in. Um, for me, I think the story was the thing, uh, was uh, my issue because my suspicion is that they condensed like a year's worth of Gen 13 history into 15 pages of references. Yeah. Um, and as a result, I just didn't sort of like, okay, there's somebody trying to get at a river, trying to raise a monster, right? So it all happened very, very fast, which my guess is if you fill in all of the holes you love, but for me, I was like, I kind of just going to go along with this ride. And so that's why I think overall, I'm kind of more of like the C plus, uh, B minus uh, kind of grade overall. Yeah. No matter how much you like the clip show, it's still it a clip still show. It is still a clip show, yeah. 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 No, no matter how yeah. much they disguise it or how well they do it, that is still, that is still what it is. So, All right, uh, Doctor. When I was given the edict that it had to be an independent uh, comic, I decided that I would go to uh, really what I think is one of the um, 
best independent comics that I've ever read, and so one that I have a heavy history with, and that is American Flag. I thought, what better place to start than American Flag number one? So this is American Flag number one, put out by First Comics, uh, with a cover date of October 1983, uh, and a cover price of $1. And I'm going to tell you, uh, Professor, I know your inclinations, but this is 28 pages of very dense story and universe making that makes me think that you wouldn't even mind spending that much money. I'll allow <laughs> it. I'll allow it. Yes. So uh, this is written and drawn by Howard Chaikin. This was his baby in the early 80s with colors by Lynn Barley um, and letters by Ken Brusenak. The cover um, is really an orange background with a man with a very determined expression on his face uh, in the foreground in sort of a red and blue patriotic looking police uniform holding an American flag. And there's text behind him that says, someone's got to put it all back together. Reuben Flagg just might be the man. Um, and so I'm going to ask you to settle in for a Hard Times Part 1. Like I said, a very dense read, which sets up the entire series, but sort of all with that Howard Chaikin flair. From a cover point of view, I do wonder, this is a little bit of a static image for a first issue. You know, you really want something, I think, that's more going to sort of like grab your imagination. And outside of that orange color, I think, being sort of different than what I would see, it's really just a guy standing there. So I don't know if in 1983 I would have been necessarily lured to buy this uh, off the bat. Um, I don't know if you guys have any comments on the cover. He does seem determined. You know, given that, you certainly get, get an expression there. I just think the background, the flags, the red, white, and blue, I'm, uh, I think that all works to be attractive. I kind of like that, like you said, sort of cover copy. To me, I thought, like, movie poster, tagline, is, is what I thought when I saw it. Because I thought, do, do comic books do that? Like, like that's the sales pitch, or that's that's the... That's the tag. Yeah, that's the, the, it's it's the like the teaser line. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the hook. Yeah. So I, I thought that was I thought that was uh, attention getting. Yeah, I'm mixed on this one. I really like the text design. I like the logo. I like Reuben himself there on the on the cover doing his like Stallone glower. <laughs> I don't, I gotta admit, I don't really like all the flags in the background, because yeah. it makes the flag in the in the logo, and oh. the flag that he's holding, and the flag on his lapels, just blend into the background. Like, I would actually have liked it a lot more if it was just a black background. I think something that could mm-hmm. would sort of really right. offset the, like, navy blue and American flag. Yeah, what if the they front. were going for overkill? It does have that red white and blue overkill stars and stripes overkill yeah yeah i wonder if that was the intention yeah and it, and it's one of those things of i get the theme <laughs> and it and it it did convey the theme but if you don't convey something that is still attractive right then you've sort of you've missed the mark a yeah. little bit so I, I i get it but i disagree with it <laughs> Let's jump in, we'll jump right into the story. Uh, so um, the book takes place in October of 2031. Hard to believe we're, you know, it's right around the corner for us. Yeah. Uh, we're in Chicago, right? We're in Chicago and we're at the Plex Mall Airport and the Plexus Ranger Chief, the Plexus Rangers being sort of the police force, the Chief Hammerhead Krieger, um, a man with a rough temper and soft scruples, is heading to the arrival gate uh, to meet his newest officer. 
And as he walks, we see the mall has gun shops, a brothel, the police station, bars, restaurants, really everything you need uh, is in the mall. And as he's walking to the arrival gate, we meet some of our supporting cast, Mandy, his uh, hothead and brilliant daughter, and even Raul, his talking cat. To build up tension, as we're seeing Krieger walk through the mall, there's a caption box of some sort, which has a timer counting down from 45 minutes with just the word Go Gang uh, above it. The new recruit we meet is Ruben Flagg, the man who's on the cover. He's an actor who is made famous for his role on a softcore television show called Mark Thrust, the Sexist Ranger. And the show is still a success, but now is entirely CGI, or tromplography, um, as it is called here. So Flagg's persona and look is still being used, but he was fired. And so with no job, he enlisted. Despite being exhausted from his long flight from Mars to Earth, Chicago, uh, Flag is pressed immediately into duty because that go-gang clock counts down. And uh, when it reaches zero, a riot happens uh, from one of the registered gangs in Chicago. Riots which happen like clockwork 45 minutes after the end of a television show called Bob Violence. Uh, the Rangers are armed with snowball guns, which fire sleep-inducing somnambutal gas. Uh, with a very interesting sound effect of pop, 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 ooh, mau, mau, uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and the gang gets knocked out. Finally able to head home, Flag meets the local brothel hostess, Gretchen Holstrom, who's waiting for him in his apartment and shows him why her nickname is Jaws 8. The next day, a surprisingly refreshed Flag meets C.K. Blitz, the mayor of Chicago, who also has some soft scruples, so you kind of get a sense of how like unsavory this world is. Uh, and then to get a better sense of the city itself, Flag and Chief Krieger take a fly over Chicago, and we kind of get a lowdown. The mall is really the safest place in town, and that's where many people actually live and never leave. That's why everything you need is there. And outside of the mall is a dire landscape where basically gangs run amok. Uh, but these gangs turn out to be registered uh, under the Plex government, supplied weapons by the Plex government, and whose fights are aired by the Plex government for profit. So you can see the government isn't exactly, you know, above uh, trying to quell this anarchy either. Flag's first week is filled with banality, vulgarity, violence, and ultimately existential despair. In a diary entry, we get some of the backstory of this Earth in 1996. Remember, this came out in 1983. That was the year of the domino, where many world events shook up the status quo, some of them which sound awfully familiar to me. The East Coast had a nuclear meltdown, the USSR fell, there was an Islamic insurrection, there were food riots in Europe, the plague hits Asia, the bank system completely collapses, Germany reunites and nukes London, there is a nuclear exchange between Israel and Iraq in the Middle East, California sinks into the ocean because of climate change, Upon, yes, and based upon all of those events, uh, many of the government leaders of the Earth head to Mars to live there, leaving this uh, conglomeration of government and business called the Plex uh, in charge of the Earth in an effort to make everything better. And the plan is to have Earth back in form in time for 2076, which would be America's tricentennial. The Saturday of his first week, Flag watches that Bob Violet show that we met before. Um, and for some reason, uh, presumed because he lived his entire life on Mars, he is able to see that the show is filled with subliminal messages to kill, attack, and riot, probably what is causing the gangs to riot 45 minutes after the end of the show. He asks that um, that show get stopped, uh, but Chief Krieger won't allow him. 
But Mandy, um, ever the thorn in her father's side, uh, brings up a little-known plex rule, which will allow Reuben to do just that. And so using one of her whammer-jammer devices that she made, remember she's brilliant, uh, the following Saturday, they're able to shut down mob violence. And that means that Hammerhead begins checking his weapons because he wonders just what those gangs will do when their favorite show doesn't air. <laughs> the end slash to be continued. A sorry, lot happens but, in this. Yeah, yes, man, a lot happens in this. I am so I'm so sorry that was a long synopsis, but I felt that I owed this comic its due because I just think this whole comic is fantastic, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Well, before we get into the details of this, ask uh, you and and uh, M this, and I'll tell my story. Of have you ever met Howard Chaykin? And oh, in all of your yeah. cons. Yeah, we saw him. I don't remember if you were there. Have any any recollection of him? He was at Baltimore Comic Con, and I think I had him sign my Black Hawk trade paperbacks, the the prestige format books that he did. First off, you may not remember that, but you remember the guy dressed like Black Hawk. Oh, of course I do. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure he had his picture taken with Chaykin. But my my impression of Chaykin was sort of your classic New York comic book guy, I don't know, 25 years younger than Stan Lee, but sort of that raconteur, storyteller, borscht belt jokes and glad handing and just sort of super nice guy. Sort of with that sales pitch, carnival barker mm-hmm. type of approach. I don't know what your impressions were, Doctor. So I've been a fan of his basically since The Shadow and Blackhawk. So Flag was like one of the first books that I actually like went out and bought back issues to fill mm. up the back mm-hmm. run. And, um, you know, he's got his element of sleaze, and I'm sure that we'll talk about that at some point. But his books are always intelligent and always challenging. And so I love that as a reader. He um, isn't, if you read a lot of his books, he kind of doesn't like um, fanboys that kind of, he wants to engage with people intelligently. And so I find him to be a little bit of an iconoclast. If you go up there and call him Howard and and like try to just be glib, I don't think he's into you. But if Mm -hmm. you're like, hey, I read Satellite Sam and I really liked your take on 50s television. Then he'll open up and he'll give you all the dirt. And he is not shy with his opinions. That is true, Uh, too. And he is certainly quite saucy, so I don't know if I would bring your children up there if you <laughs> want to spare them uh, curse words uh, and things like that. But I'm, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure at Baltimore he had a panel, and I think that was more of the let it all fly. Mm. But at, at his table, he was a little more avuncular, though he was certainly not above getting, as you said, a little grumpy and grouchy when the situation called for it. Yeah, I have to say one of my favorite con memories was he came to Boston Comic Con. It's got to be eight years ago and nobody was at his table. And I started to talk to him and then I actually sat down at a chair at his table and the two and I just had like a 20 minute conversation. And uh, again, as a longtime fan of his, I was like, tell me about your pitch to do Superman that got denied when Byrne got it. And he talked all about that. And it was really just fantastic. Um because I think he is. He's, he is a very um, charismatic kind of guy, if you can deal with him. And thank you for not bringing Black Kiss <laughs> and just, just doing American Flag. This, this was saucy <laughs> enough for me, okay? 
Yes, yes. It's so funny because I will tell you that there have been times that I've been at his table and I'm talking to him about stuff and then somebody comes up with Black Kiss and they're like, I was 12 when I saw this and it changed my life and he signs it and I just think he's like, oh, this is not the clientele I was hoping no. to get, so. <laughs> <laughs> I always love these stories from the past that take place in the future where in some cases we've moved beyond it, mm -hmm. or as you said, we're actually approaching the time of this uh, of this story. And, you know, you, you can sort of poke fun and say, well, obviously he got this wrong and got this wrong, and so, you know, a lot there. But, man, he got a lot right. <laughs> you know, sort of the big picture. I mean, the details, you know, forget about those. But reality TV culture media and government working together uh shopping as entertainment there's so much in here that he was pulling at or noticing or or seeing 30 years ago and developing yeah i mean for me it's like pornography being everywhere the rise of islam and revolutions there germany reuniting like all of these things that you sort of say he was so prescient even the whole thing about how the show is being made with him just being cgi and seeing right. how that is happening now right you see but, fred Astaire but, dancing in a diet coke commercial you know yeah, so but, i mean we didn't really even have hints of that in 1983 no, that's what I'm saying. It's I mean, really amazing. A little bit of that started in the May, I don't know, '90s, early 2000s, and we, you know, Star Wars a couple of years ago. It's still pretty. It's happening, but it's still pretty rare. But yeah. but again, he was on that. I've got to say that Mark Thrust is the number one <laughs> definitive proof of why you should always, always negotiate your likeness rights See? separate from your working contract. <laughs> always. See. <laughs> Now, of course, don't know about your case, Dr. Ange, but uh, M and I, we're cat people. Yeah, so, so love cats. Yeah, not Ra so Ra sure Raul about the, the talking. talking cat not is my favorite sure character. About the talking easily, part, but... easily my favorite. That Raul was the rock that I could hold on to in this like weird, zany, over-the-top commentary every like two panels story because it is dense. It is very, very, very very dense and i will admit that i did not even catch the plexus ranger reference <laughs> until you said it Ange. yeah there's a lot happening in this book yeah it's like he has to set the foundation for this world and somehow he's able to really sort of smoosh it all together in this one issue that you kind of have an understanding of what's going on but it is pretty dense and um and but the other thing about it that is that i love is that he's so wonderful with things like wordplay as well so oh, like yeah. you know the the next day uh contraceptive slash you know uh sexually transmitted disease antibiotic manana psyllin which is just like such a wonderful word and the name of the uh, gangs like some of them are like the Goddard Democrats and, and you know he's just wonderful with that sort of stuff and I'm a, both a dog and a cat person and I'll let okay. you know that later on in this um, in this series Raul gets a little robotic hands so that he has like opposable thumbs um, and, oh my. and he ultimately it. gets elected yeah and he ultimately gets elected mayor so uh... yes <laughs> change we can believe in Tuna for everyone yeah, I don't, I don't sense any political commentary in that, Ange, do you? <laughs> An animal being elected? Oh, I wonder what yeah. he's getting at there. Which, again, exists. 
There is a cat mayor in Alaska. <laughs> Just FYI. Now, of course, Dragon Con's Michael Bailey would not forgive, would never forgive me if I failed to point out that at one point Krieger appears to be a uh, virtual realitying meatloaf album. Yes, he is. Because like a bat out of hell, I'll be gone, gone, gone. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but we're getting closer on VR types of things. A lot of these, both the technology, the sociology, but within the, the world building, the character doesn't get lost in that. That's one of the criticisms of sometimes of fantasy novels or big space epic sci-fi, where you spend the first, whether it's the first couple of episodes or the first hundred pages or the first 30, page, 30 minutes of the movie, whatever it is, with the world building, and then you get to the story. But uh, Chaikin is able to integrate those two things here. Flag is definitely, if you read um, a lot of Chaikin's work, the guy who is, I'm ultimately very liberal, I hate the system, I sometimes hate people who are um, liberal because they're just as corrupt as anybody else, I'm exhausted and I'm just trying mm -hmm. to do what's right, is very much his character. So right. whether it was Iron Wolf early on, even his Blackhawk, I would say, um, and then past you know, American Flag into some of the miniseries that he did for either Image or Wildstorm. I think all that sort of runs through. And uh, these days, you know, we don't have Plex TV, but I do watch Live PD. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's that's not too... Di he was on to something here. He was on to yeah. something here. He called it. You're part of the problem. I know I am. He was right. He was right. Oh, good. Uh, you want to give this some grades, Ange? No fear of grade inflation. No grade too high. <laughs> okay. Um, for me, I think actually the weakest part of this is the cover. Um, so I'm going to give the cover a B, um, but I'm going to say the inside art and the story are all A plus to me. I think it's just, um, I mean, he did all of the art. He used a lot of zip tone. He has very dynamic page layouts with characters overlying panels, small inset panels. Uh, I mean, I think this whole thing just crackles for me. And I would highly recommend the first 12 issues of this, um, which uh, do come in a single trip because that is sort of like the first story about him discovering just how corrupt the Plex is and trying to save everything. Uh, for me, I give the cover a B. I'm not in love with that font. The American flag, the, the logo, the font you know, uh, of the mm -hmm. title, something odd about that. But I do like the fact that sort of all that, all that red, white, and blue, it sort of tells one story, but then his sneer to me sort of tells another story. So I think I think there is something dynamic there, but that's a B. The art now I'm generally not an art guy, like I said with the first with the first one, and I appreciate the fact that he has definitely a different style. And this is unlike most of what was happening in comics at the time. This sort of pre-crisis or still Bronze Age, uh, almost if you you know uh, hold to those designations. And I thought for the most part it was solid, probably. I'd probably go B, B minus with the story more of a B plus just because we were talking about there's so much cool stuff there. A little bit of exaggeration on the art sometimes and maybe I thought maybe the panel layouts were trying a bit too hard at times almost. But overall, this is a B, B plus at least. And here in the early 80s, a lot of creativity happening in the indie world. 
and certainly American Flag, one of the really well thought of, one of the good ones. Well, I've already said I wasn't a huge fan of the cover. I think I this one I would probably give a C plus, mostly just because of I I, I really can't get behind the design work mm-hmm. on it. That mm-hmm. while it very much is message and concept and idea just right there visually represented and i appreciate that at a certain extent it is at the expense of the actual design work and that bothers me a little bit because within the art itself this is not a problem at Mm -hmm. all um if anything chaken layouts chaken's layouts are too dense throughout the rest of the art and I, i wish he'd spent maybe a little bit more time on the cover so i would i would give the cover a C or a C plus. The, again, the line work and the design work I think is all great. It just doesn't quite gel for me personally. As for the internal art, I have I have no quibbles with the art <laughs> itself. Howard Chaikin is masterful. His expressions are great. I think that the amount of exaggeration is perfect for the yeah. kind of story he's telling. I, 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 you know, I called it on the cover when we first started talking about it. But uh, Reuben Flagg very much has a Stallone face. Like, he cannot make <laughs> subtle expressions. As a piece of design work, as a character choice, I really dig that. He always looks very sad, very angry, yeah. very surprised, very upset, very <laughs> tired. Um, whatever it is, it's whatever very it is, that. He, he feels it at 10 always. Um, which, I, which, especially for this over-the-top, John Carpenter-esque kind of modern horror sci-fi futurism i think totally works so for the art itself i would give it an a but i'm gonna deduct it to an a minus just because the layouts are so dense like Mm -hmm. i i get that he wants to do all of his story world setting through dialogue but there is just so much text on every single Mm -hmm. page and part of this is because i read it in digital I think if I read it in a print copy, it would be a lot easier. I'd be able to focus on right, each page Right, you see the whole page at one, and then... Mm-hmm. Um, I, it would, I wouldn't get as distracted, I don't think. So I give that a, a minor, a minor quibble, <laughs> uh, but absolutely masterful. Uh, the story is, I think, a solid B. A lot of really dense satire, commentary, wordplay. This is definitely a book that benefits from a second read and that's mm, not a bad yeah, thing right um there were so many so many jokes commentaries real world political references that i just totally missed the first time mm. through that's not howard chaikin's fault that's <laughs> yeah here's a lot of stuff that i'm gonna throw at you really really fast and if you can't sit down and devote the amount of time needed to unpack this i'm not gonna slow down for you like i'm, I'm not, not putting i'm not putting training wheels on this story i was just thinking sometimes when you go to a, a really good comedy movie Sometimes you're laughing so hard at the one joke, you miss the next joke. I think there's times here you're sort of thinking so hard or ah about one line or one comment, you might miss the next couple of panels. You're just breezing through those and not making the connection because your brain is trying to figure out what what was done a couple of uh, panels ago. Yeah. So So I would say my my overall score for this is a a B plus with a caveat. It is (laughs) very good. It is extremely good. It is not my thing. Mm. I am probably not going to read any more American Flag, but I can say unequivocally, <laughs> American Flag is great. And I'm not going to read it, but you probably should. <laughs> Very good. 
Very good. Good one, Ange. That's a, that was a solid pick. Bring in the heat. I like it. Well, thank you. I try. <laughs> now, I'm bringing a book that I recently picked up for a buck. I know. Ugh. Calm down. At uh, Packrat Comics. This is Mickey Spillane's Mike Danger, Volume 2, Number 4, from Big Entertainment, formerly Techno Comics, cover dated September 1996. So I'll be using Techno Comics and Big Entertainment, those phrases interchangeably. Uh, one was the parent company of the other, and they branded differently during their couple of years in existence. So on the cover by Eduardo Beretta, we see a blonde woman unzipping her bodysuit in front of a scruffy-looking man with a fedora and a gun. So what do you think of that cover, Em? I mean, it tells you exactly what this book is. It says what it is on the tin. Exactly. It is somewhat sleazy, very 50s. But I will say, really well shaded. <laughs> you know, you see this cover and you're like, I know exactly what I'm going to uh, yeah. uh, get, right? Uh, this is film noir on Cinemax, mm-hmm. uh, is probably the way I would phrase it. Yeah. This could be a 1950s book cover if it were black and white and photorealistic. The cover of a cheap detective paperback. Now, the two most important words on the cover in terms of Techno's business model are the two words at the top, Mickey and Spillane, because that was, that was what they were about, was taking the celebrity creators and convincing them to do a comic book with them, with obviously the hopes that if it turned into a movie or TV show, the creator would have some financial stake in that. So my question for M... As a 20-something, albeit one who's worked five years in libraries, mm-hmm. does the name Mickey Spillane ring a bell? Does that mean anything to you here 20-some-plus years later after this comic? It did, but I could not have told you if you put a gun to my head whether he was an actor or a writer. Mm, a little bit of both, mostly playing himself in, yeah. in, in, yeah. in uh, various uh, TV detective shows. He was on Columbo. Uh, as himself, as or, himself, or as a struggling detective writer of some kind, probably. Yeah, he did. He did sort of live into that persona. If you see sort of talk show appearances and and, and that sort of thing. Uh, now, and you're a little bit older, so same question: Does does Mickey Spillane mean anything to you, or, or what does that mean to you? I most I know who Mickey Spillane is. It's mostly Mike Hammer that I know, and exactly. I keep seeing. Uh, I keep seeing characters who have names that are very similar to my camera that I don't know if they're actual creations of Mickey Spillane um, or not. So I read this and I was like, Mike Danger, right? But then (laughs) he might have just made like a bunch of knockoff characters. I have to assume they couldn't put his name above it if he had not created it. So So I think uh, in, in terms of the novels for Mike Hammer, again, you may have, I think, I, the jury and Kiss Me Deadly are probably the two, the two most famous of those of those novels but i mean most of the most of what big entertainment did was hook up with sci-fi people mm-hmm. isaac asimov and gene roddenberry and leonard nimoy but they also had a couple of these other more literary literary folks as well did want to talk just a little bit about some things on the inside cover because again this is part of what techno was doing 
And it does say that this is based on a concept created by Mickey Spillane and Max Allen Collins. Now that name, I did know. <laughs> because our library had a massive, massive mystery section. Mm. I would say probably one in six fiction and maybe mm. one in 20 total books in the entire collection was mystery. was mystery or in some cases true crime. Right. Now, I'm guessing you may have seen Mickey Splane and Max Allen Collins' name together. Yes, I have. <laughs> because they they became... I, I could not find any evidence of them having a partnership before this, so it's possible this is uh, where they connected. Uh, Mickey Splane lived into the mid-2000s-ish, 2005, 2010, somewhere around there. And since then, Collins became... Spillane, sort of literary... Heir? Yeah, heir, executor. Finished up, quote-unquote, about the last 10 or 12 Mickey Spillane novels. And they actually and they, and they had done some co-writing before Spillane passed away. And this is, for context, a couple years before Road to Perdition. Okay. Sort of when Max Allen Collins, probably his most famous, most famous work. Uh, also wanted to mention that uh, the anchor on this is Terry Beatty, and Collins and Beatty teamed up about 10 years before this for the excellent Ms. Tree. And as you can tell, in this genre, puns and names, Ms. Tree, uh-huh. Mike Hammer and Mike Danger, and obviously a reference to Magnum P.I., even a character, we have a character here, a woman called Man. You know, so those thing jokes about the bad puns on names is sort of, I think, a trope of this uh, of this genre. So wanted to give give everybody their uh, their shout outs here. In terms of this particular series, again, the paragraph on the inside cover gives us the pitch. The year is 2052. The city is New New York, commonly known as New Two. On the surface, the city state is the ultimate realization of a politically correct utopia. However, Mike Danger, the 1950s private eye, whose hundred-year nap left him a stranger in an even stranger time, has discovered that there is more to this idyllic future than meets the eye. So this literally is Mike Hammer. Not but but time-traveled. Time-traveled, with a slightly different name, I'm sure, for copyright reasons. That is exactly what we have here. So this is A Woman Called Man, written by Max Allen Collins, with art by Peter Grant and Terry Beatty. So we start with the woman on the cover, who introduces herself as Katrina Mann, and she wants to see Roll Decker. She's standing before two bodyguard-looking people in front of a door that's standing amid a bunch of ruins. But that, I guess, is an illusion, because she fights up past them all the way through a building to meet Decker. And we learned that Mann had an intimate relationship with Decker's late business partner and that they were trying to make money off of, okay, stick with me on this one, memories that they were taking from Mike Danger's head for the virtual reality market. But fortunately, our titular hero got his head put back on sometime in the past. Stick with me, Em. Stop shaking your head like that. <laughs> this is going to be a long trip. It's a comic. It's a comic. 
anyway. Man then femme fatales her way into Decker's life, and they agree on a proposition and on a business deal. About halfway through the issue, we finally do meet Mike Danger, who hard-boiled narrates his way through his current situation, which includes him being hired to go up against the Sin Syndicate, the neo-mobsters, who we believe may have wakened sleepers, people like Danger. He and Patricia Chandler of the Violent Crimes Unit have one target, bringing to justice Roll Decker, who we learn from a Mike Danger flashback, that he's in fact Ralph Deckard, bad dude crime boss from the 1950s. Danger's assistant Ava, who he roughs up just a little bit, tells him the rumor that man has been selling his memories to Decker. So Danger spreads the word that he is available for hire by Decker and the Sin Syndicate, and he gets an invite to meet the big guy, and he recognizes his underlings as guys from his era. And then seven blams and one kablam later, he has fired his way through all of Decker's men and Decker himself, only to come face to face with Katrina Mann herself. And in exchange for not getting herself killed, she promises him answers to all of his questions, including his false memories. And who was pulling the puppet strings? Ba 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 ba. The end. <laughs> what are you laughing at, Doctor Ange? I, I don't get it. Uh, okay. This was... For 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 a book that has some similarities on the surface to American Flag, they're about as far apart as they could be. Yeah, I was going to say, um, if I have a dollar to spend on American Flag or a dollar to spend on this, I'm definitely buying American Flag. <laughs> <laughs> Not not to get too mean to your book, but if I have two dollars to spend on American flag and a dollar to spend on this, I'm still probably gonna buy American flag. Oh yeah. <laughs> dude, that is cold. Cold I was a sucker for techno comics back in the day. I've talked about them on uh Quarterman podcast and then followed up on the comics reading journal. So when I found this one, oh, this was one that I missed. I picked it up. I don't think I read any Mike Danger, or at least not not from this volume, or at least not far enough to have his head cut off and then reattached. <laughs> okay, I admit, I was out at that point. This is a very silly book. What? I, I'm just putting it Which out there. You, I mean, this is a very silly comic book. And that's the thing, is that Mickey Spillane didn't do silly. He did hard, boiled, and intense. Max Allen Collins whether it was Ms. Tree before this, Road to Perdition after this, his Quarry series of novels, they're all legitimate, hard case, 1950s up to modern day, you know, hard-boiled, legitimate detective stories. I think maybe throwing in that sci-fi time travel element put him so far out of his comfort zone that he didn't quite know what to do. Yeah. Writing SF is a very specific skill. And I appreciate Max Allen Collins' skill in not this venue. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I get that. I get that. Let me he's no Spider Robinson who can who can blend that extremely dark and very silly. Like mm -hmm. that's a very specific skill. This is no Heinlein, this is no Robinson. It's yep. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I get that. 
And I think by the time I jumped off of this title, he was the only person who had been jumped forward 100 years. But it seems like, I don't know, everybody in Chicago seems to have been jumped forward 100 years. And it's kind of like, I, I don't know where you are on this, but I prefer Superman and Supergirl to be about the only survivors of Krypton. I don't need, yeah. I don't need you know, um, every other person who lived on Krypton who just happened to have been saved as well. <laughs> you lose some of the uniqueness, and I think we're, maybe it was, you know, Colin saying, well, if I'm stuck here in the middle of the 21st century, I will at least li literally bring characters from the 1950s to give myself a comfort zone with what I can write. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. You know, you could play the whole man out of time, right? That he's the politically incorrect 50s guy in this very politically correct sterile future. But it's as though there's this whole uh, seedy underbelly, which, you know, to be honest, they kept saying, oh, this, you know, the government and its puritanical views and how it holds everybody down. And yet we never saw that at all in this book. This yeah. whole book reads like like the Roaring Twenties, you know, mm -hmm. so. Exactly, um, exactly. So exactly. so it was hard to sort of mesh all of those things together. Yeah, I, I feel like there were sort of two premises for this book going at the same time, which is we've gone 100 years into the future and nothing has changed. And we've gone 100 years into the future and it's, and 19, and it's 1984. Oh, right. And right. it's like you kind of need to pick one, like either go with the political commentary of the government and social structures are completely oppressive and, and no one has any sort of say, or you need to be like, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and everything has completely fallen apart. Yeah. I, I'm going to be honest, I liked this one a lot more before I read American Flag. <laughs> Again, not identical. I mean, they're not trying to do the exact same thing, but they're doing sort of similar things, and one does pale in comparison. Yep. You know, I, I just found it a little bit interesting. You know, this like Katrina man character is just like such classic femme fatale, right? Kills a guy on page one, sleeps with a guy on page seven, you know, sleeps with a different guy on page 10, kisses a different guy on page 25. And oh, by the way, is utterly irresistible. It's kind of like, you know, if I can, uh, you know, bring up uh, a true film noir, it's sort of like Jane Greer and out of the past, right? She's just completely irresistible to these guys who should be able to sell that she's in it only for mm -hmm. herself and mm -hmm. is going to bring them down, right? So I just wonder if part of the allure of this or what they told Max Collins was make it just sexy enough that guys will want to buy it for that aspect alone. Right. Could be. Well, I'm just going to jump into grading this thing. And uh, the cover, I think, and it's a, it's a comic book version of a hard-boiled P.I. novel down to the sexy femme fatale and none of the you said it, Em, or Ange did, and the shadows, even. <laughs> Everyone's halfway in shadow. So to me, that's a B. I mean, it does it, it does what it's, what it's uh, trying to do. Uh, the art on the inside, I guess the characters are distinct. The storytelling is okay, but I don't get enough future stuff thinking about it. I don't, again, especially compared to American Flag, you don't get enough of that world building. So the art may be C-plus-ish. Again, I, it, it, the story... Now, I have to confess this, that I am a sucker for Max Allen Collins. Uh, a few years back, library professional Mark Sweeney <gasps> and I teamed up to do a crossover podcast episodes 
about mystery and Max Allen Collins listened to those episodes, made specific comments in thanking us for doing it. So I have to say I am giving great inflation <laughs> because he's a teacher's pet. So I'm giving it like a B, maybe? Well, I, th I originally had B+, plus, but I've got to drop that to a B. Even liking the author as much as I do uh, on a personal basis. Again, too many of these sleepers here I'd prefer as adversaries to have actually been from the future. I think that must have been the original pitch, and maybe he didn't know how to how to handle that. So, uh, overall, B, B minus. Again, I'm a sucker for techno comics. I admit that. They were about the only new comics I was buying in the mid-90s. So I do have a bit of nostalgia behind them, so I don't hate these as much as I should, and I'm sure as much as you two may. Well, um, I have to do my due diligence as the Scott of this particular <laughs> team. Are you, you going to tell this book to get off your lawn? <laughs> Look, Max Allen Collins is a very nice man. You and I both really like techno comics. I'm not doing this to be mean. This one's pretty bad. But it's not very good. Okay. Uh, I would say that easily the best part of this book is the cover. Is the cover at a solid B. Solid. I, I would actually Ouch. say, I, honestly, I would give this a B plus because yes, it's sort of like lascivious and a little bit icky, but that's the tone. Yeah. It. it Shows exactly what the story is going to be like. The shading is gorgeous. The colors are gorgeous. I think that the cover is, like, pretty great, considering that for for a techno-comic offshoot in 1996, this is perfect. But then... About a B plus. Then you open the book. Yeah, the interior <laughs> art is not good. I mean, I, I already yeah. said it before on my own book. I don't really like the 90s coloring palette, and yeah. unfortunately, techno-comics... The coloring was never yeah. ideal. Uh, even on our favorite book of the era, Mr. Mr. Hero, Hero. Yeah. even there, the coloring is easily the weakest part. And when the art itself is sort of middle of the road and the inking is somewhat amateurish, the color really doesn't help. It, it, it makes the book look pretty slapdash. So I'm going to give the art a C, not unreadable, but also not particularly pleasant. Um, story, I'd say a B minus. It conceptually, it's not bad, and what's there is written well. But this is definitely one of those books that would come back from like a more professional comic company with an editor's yeah. note that says "good first draft," yeah, and just covered in red pen. You you you, you mentioned that I actually uh, when I covered a techno comic book before. On the uh, on the quarter bin, I actually heard from the one of the editors, Christopher Mills, who edited this book, and he said, "Look, there were lots of problems, lots of this." He said, "The thing I'm most proud of, we never had a book late." Yes, and I sense this was not late. Right. <laughs> maybe a month, maybe another rewrite would have helped, but it would have been late. Yes. So I respect their decisions and the way that they were working. They were a very small company. You know, we read a decent amount of cheaply produced indie books, and, and we do give them some slack on that. Um, so I would say good writer, decent concept, and with, uh, like, a week. 
Another problem. If, if the scheduling was such that Max Allen Collins had been allowed to have an extra week before it had to be lettered, I think that this maybe, would be a solid maybe, A minus. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I, I think I think a lot of work could have been updated. I honestly think the dialogue in this is really funny. The part where Mike Danger walks in and says, "Like, hey, I'm looking for a job," and they're like, as soon as he walks in, one of the goons is like. Boss, I don't think he recognizes us. And then spends the rest of the page being like, Hey, ain't you Jimmy the Noose? Hey, I thought you got fitted for cement overshoes. Hey, it's it's Mickey the Goon. What, what's up? Hey, what are you doing here, buddy? That was funny. That was legitimate comedy, well-written, well-delivered. That was great. And I wish the rest of the book had been on caliber with that. So at the end of the day, C+. And on to the person not related to me. <laughs> um, not, not, like, not inclined to show mercy yeah, Remember, I'll you're say, not judging the person who brought the book We're just judging uh, the book And we're not that in mind. And we're not being mean to Mr. Alan Collins <laughs> He was no, a, no, no, a very not. nice man And a very good writer <laughs> Who wrote this very uh, quickly So uh, like you guys I would say Probably the best thing of this is the cover You know it's done by um, Eduardo Barreto Who's really oh, like yeah. a true professional And kind of legend in the field And definitely has that sort of classic take um, And I think you know The perspective of just enough Of Mike Danger in the foreground Sort mm-hmm. of the gun pulled out The whole thing uh, works for the tone That it's trying to set The art on the inside I think is pretty pedestrian And I think they do their best To try to build this world Where there is you know, there is an underground Trying to fight this puritanical government And there is a mob that deals in Sinful things that is also trying to do that And those two groups um, are teaming up Because there is you know, a unified enemy But you just never really get enough of it To sort of understand exactly Everything that's going on And uh, instead it felt just very uh, Trope heavy to me So I would say pedestrian art C minus Story, uh, ambitious story that doesn't quite get there C minus uh, So I'd say overall C minus uh, And that's because even that's a little bit elevated just <laughs> to be a good guess. <laughs> oh, Ange, thanks. See, Ange is used to dealing with people in suffering, painful situations. <laughs> this is a demonstration of your bedside Great manner. Compassion. Good going on you, buddy. Good going. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me, or thank you, Ange, for joining us. Appreciate that. Where can we find you and what you're doing online? Uh, I'm most active on Twitter at DrAnge70. Um, I am a member of the Legion of Superbloggers, um, and I do reviews there on Friday, and I run that Supergirl website called Comic Box Commentary. And Award-winning right the... Supergirl. Yeah. <laughs> right now, the big thing that I'm really diving head into is um, Event Leviathan for DC, where I'm posting a lot of my breakdowns of all of the clues that are going on there um, and trying to figure out exactly who Leviathan is before it gets revealed. And you have been doing that regularly. Yeah, and, I have. And systematically and just between us, maybe a little nutsy cuckoo. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that in a good way. Uh, yeah, I mean, what's good is that I have a main theory and I'm sticking to it, but then every so often I look at the clues like any good mystery and I go, mm-hmm. boy, this person actually is a pretty decent suspect, and then I try to break down my thoughts on that. It is a little crazy, I will admit. <laughs> and to anyone who is on Twitter, if you're not following D-R-A-N-J-7-0, Dr. Ange 70 you're missing a positive 
friendly Twitter experience, and there aren't many of those around. Well, thanks. <laughs> uh, and M, uh, tell us about where we can find you online, brag about your work, and your wonderful co-host. Well, my dad and I do an awesome show together called Shortbox Showcase. Yes. Uh, he also has a much-beloved show called the Quarterbin Podcast and the uh, the monthly comics reading journal, neither of which I listen to. What? I'm sorry. What? This is... I'm thinking about writing somebody out of the will. I don't have anyone to write into the will. That's the problem. I know. (laughs) Your Uh, options are limited. Only children. We also have a side project that we've been doing since the middle of 2015, which is really my baby. Uh, And that is Dorkness to Light, which is on its own separate feed and blog. And that show is all about the intersections of religious and spiritual and metaphysical content where that coincides with pop culture and comic books and geekery and i i love i love that feed so much it's bond out of some of our discussions yep. we've had on short box showcase where we would get to a topic and say but we really don't have enough time to dig that deeply this into isn't the, spiritual... the forum to <laughs> dig into that we so... can't we can't dig into the spiritual underpinnings of the specter and how that relates to the cosmology of the dc universe we're gonna have to make a completely separate feed and go do, do it, it over, over there. there. <laughs> um, but I run the the Tumblr for that, which is darknesstolight.tumblr.com. That is your baby. Yes. That is darkness with an O, to light, not from darkness, and not darkness. You know, it seemed like a great name at the time. And, yet, and we're going to spend forever explaining it. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you go and check out that Tumblr, I run that and... That was that was basically just an excuse for me to make the blog that I really <laughs> wanted to follow. I was like, I want something that's like religious puns, Jesus memes, commentary on spiritual pluralism, uh, fairy tales, ghost stories, <laughs> and like really, really good exegesis. All in one place. All in one place. And then I was like, well, no one does it. And I'm like, I guess I'm going to have to do that. Huh. <laughs> All right. Well. Both of you, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. And thanks, Paul Spatero, for letting us do this. And I guess thanks to Charlie and Scott McGregor, Tom, Luke, Hope, Gene, Andy, all the other people who regularly do two true freaks shows who were too busy when Paul called. And here we are. So, <laughs> As a result, we, wait a we minute. Got How to, did that we happen? got to play in the... In the... Yeah, in the sandbox. Exactly. So, uh, we promise we'll put the studio back the way we found it. <laughs> the show will be back next week. And I have no idea what they'll be doing, but it can't possibly be as good as this one. Can it? <laughs> Can it? Please say it. See you then. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, 
and we'll see you next week. Refresh me on how the format for actually recording this show goes. Well, Just you know, you read read the vital read stats. Read the intro, and then, then talk about the cover briefly. There's the graphic cover there. Oh yes, very much appreciated. It was not in your scan, but look, you were doing it at work. I understand. <laughs> Oh, oh, I do them all at once. Yeah, you do oh them all gosh. at once. Uh, it's been a very long time since I listened to Back to the Bins. <sighs> I know. Or have been on one. Look. <laughs> it's been longer for Ange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True.